Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I am pleased to welcome the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, who is also the founding editor of Public Discourse, which is the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute of Princeton, New Jersey. His scholarly research has been cited by Supreme Court justices and debated in publications like the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Washington Post. He graduated from Princeton and got his doctorate from Notre Dame. His books have covered topics like what is marriage, so he is no stranger to so-called controversy. But his book that we will discuss today is actually delisted or effectively banned by Amazon. That book is called When Harry Became Sally, and I'm honored to welcome now its author, Dr. Ryan Anderson. How are you today, Ryan? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me about this important topic, which you call America's Transgender Moment. Your book is all about facts and science and medical practice, and in fact, it's got about 35 pages of notes or references. I intend that we will take a very deliberate approach to unpacking some of its observations for our listeners, and I want listeners to understand a few things up front. So first, I'll offer this guidance This discussion will be professional and discreet, but the topic is very explicitly regarding sex. Along with that little bit of parental guidance, I want to state plainly, we'll be conducting this discussion from a common point of view in which love is our primary motivation. God created us, God loves us, and God is love, and furthermore, God is truth, and therefore truth and love are never at odds. So even if the truth we discuss today is uncomfortable for some, let no one doubt we love everyone. So to start our discussion, Dr. Anderson, I want to ask you to define some key terms. I think it's important that words mean what they mean and are used with a common understanding of those meanings. The first I wanted to ask you about is what is gender dysphoria? A simple way of thinking about gender dysphoria is that it's the distress, discomfort uh, that someone might feel with their own bodily sex, and then the consequences that come along with that. Uh, And this is a new APA definition. The previous term was gender identity disorder. So for the first four editions of the the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, just feeling a sense of alienation, having a different gender identity from your biological sex was gender identity disorder. With gender dysphoria, they said you need that, plus you also need uh, negative consequences that flow from that. I think for our listeners, uh, the the biggest takeaway should be that there are people who feel a deep sense of um, discomfort, uh, distress, alienation from their body. And then the question is, what should we do about it? Um, Should we try to transform bodies or should we try to help people, you know, line up their thoughts and their feelings with their bodies? A couple of the other terms are, of course, sex and gender. And I want to find out if in the context that we're discussing, are those terms sex and gender interchangeable? And how do they relate to the organization of our species? Great question. Uh, The first thing to say is that sex is a biological reality, um, that our sex nature as male or female 
is common across uh, the mammalian species where sex is determined based upon how an organism is organized with respect to sexual reproduction. And there are two ways of being organized with respect to sexual reproduction, a male way and a female way. There are two sexual reproductive systems. There are two sexual organs. There are two genitals. Uh, there are two sets of sex chromosomes, XY and XX. Uh, there are two gametes, sperm and, and egg, right? And so this is why we can say there's a sex binary, uh, that it's not a spectrum, that it's not fluid. You're either organized uh, a male way, you're organized a female way, and right? you're not going to be going back and forth. That's what sex is. Historically, gender had been a synonym for sex, uh, and that sex and gender would refer to the same things. Second way, feminists wanted to say that sex is merely biological, and then gender is a social construct. And so, you know, sex as the physical, biological, bodily reality means that there's certain, you know, different body parts, but that some people like blue and some people like pink, that's a gender difference, not a sex difference. That some people wear pants and some people wear dresses, that's a gender difference, not a sex difference, right? So that's what uh, second wave feminists were arguing. And that, and that was important because they were going to say things that, look, you know, who does the dishes and who makes the money? That's a gender difference, not a uh, sex difference. Now, where we are today is that there's a third concept, sex, gender, gender identity, which is how do you identify with respect to gender? And now we have some doctors and scientists arguing that someone's gender identity determines their sex, which is just a radical claim to go from, you know, sex is a physical reality and gender is a cultural construct to now your internal sense of gender is what determines your sex. And therefore we should use hormones and surgery um, to transform bodies to align with gender identities. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, 50 year progression uh, within the US on those kind of three terms. Well, there is so much to unpack in that response. Doctoral dissertations reside right there because the concepts that you just presented bring more questions than we'll have time to discuss over numerous interviews. But I did hear the word binary, and I was going to ask you a question that uh, Will Witt asked college students on campuses across America. How many sexes or genders are there among humans? It sounds like you would say two, Dr. Anderson. But now, since we get that, I will just ask you, when Will Witt of PragerU asked that question, how many genders are there? of college students across campuses, what percentage would you say responded that there are two genders? A low percentage. The indoctrination that's going on is terrible. Uh, my bet is that a higher percentage knows the answer is two, but they feel they can't say it, right? And, and I think, you know, one of the important things that, you know, someone like me does in my scholarship is I'm writing permission slips, right? I'm writing permission slips for ordinary people to be able to say what they know that's written on their heart, that it's true, right? And they might not have the highfalutin degrees and educate, blah, 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 but they have common sense, right? This is where I, I like to say, you know, I've written books to make arguments to prove all sorts of things that like my grandmother who never went to, you know, never, never graduated from high school, she just knew. But, all right, so what's the answer? What, what, what percentage does say to? Exactly zero. Wow. Now that's, I mean, he, he only interviewed hundreds, not every student, but 
Yes, exactly zero. So it is an important topic. And the fact that you said that they knew better but wouldn't dare say it was so evident on their strained faces as Will asked them this question. And some of them were like, um, I think the number 73 now. Uh, <laughs> that sort of pressure being placed on um, college students that you don't want to go against political correctness. And then politicians, you know, just, you know, jumping on the bandwagon and saying, you know, transgender rights are the human rights issue of our time. What we shouldn't forget is that there, there are victims being created by this. And that's the people who are really, you know, struggling with gender dysphoria who aren't getting the real help they deserve, right? They're being told, well, look, there's 78 genders and therefore you're just one of the other 76 of them, right? You're not male or female. You might be, you know, non-binary. You might be gender fluid. You might be gender ambidextrous. And then, you know, various hormones and surgeries are being deployed on their bodies. And so one of the things that, you know, I hope to do is uh, get that number for college students zero above zero, right? And, and get it so that there are other people willing to defend the truth on this because, you know, human flourishing, human dignity is what's really at stake here. Um, it's not just, you know, weird political correctness that we have to kind of like roll our eyes at. It's like there are real people who are going to suffer as a result of these bad ideologies. And I want to talk about how that manifests. But first, we hear terms like sex assigned at birth. And I wanted to ask you, Dr. Anderson, why is that a misstatement? First is that sex isn't assigned. Sex is recognized. Um, and so uh, sex is an inbuilt reality. It's a biological reality. It's a physical reality. Uh, no one assigns it to us. You could say that God creates us a certain way. And maybe you could say in that sense, it's a sign, but I don't even like the language of God assigning sex. So it makes it seem like God just arbitrarily assigns it. It's like when we are created, we are created with a nature and part of our nature is our sexed nature. And that's not a mere assignment, the way that, you know, you might assign someone to be on this team, someone to be on that team, right? These are inbuilt realities. And it's based upon what we do in utero, right? The chromosomes that we inherit from our mother and our father, those chromosomes lead to the development of certain sex organs, which starts producing certain sex hormones, which then lead to the development of certain genitalia and certain sexual reproductive systems, right? And those are all gonna be in a binary nature, right? Sperm or egg, there's not a third gamete. XX, XY, uh, penis, vagina, right? I mean, you, you go through the category. And that's why there's a binary. And those things aren't assigned at birth. Those things are recognized and they're not even recognized at birth. Like, you know, many parents find out at 20 week ultrasound visits, you know, whether they're having a boy or a girl. And the, it's not like the ultrasound technician is assigning a sex to the child. The ultrasound technician can discern a reality about the child. Now, why do they use the language sex assigned at birth? Because if they can convince people that sex was merely assigned by a doctor, then they can convince people that sex can be reassigned later in life. Well, given the fact that these chromosomes, XX or XY, are determinative, not merely indicative of sex, mm -hmm. a basic question then, Dr. Anderson, is in spite of all surgical possibilities, can our sex actually be changed? No. And, and that's the sad reality here is that there are surgeons trying to do the impossible 
uh, thinking that it will bring good outcomes to their patients. Uh, but when you try to do the impossible, you're almost destined uh, to be frustrated by the outcomes. And so what's happening here is that uh, we can, surgeons and endocrinologists, they can use you know, various forms of plastic surgery, various forms of hormone therapy to feminize male bodies and to masculinize female bodies, but they can't actually turn a man into a woman or a woman into a man. And that's why it doesn't make things go uh, much better for people who are trying to live as if they are the opposite sex. Uh, so one of the things that I do in the book is I just go through study after study that when you look at the data, it shows that even after hormonal and surgical, quote, reassignment or transition, um, even when it goes well as a technical matter, right? You know, the surgery didn't have complications, you know, the, the, the finished product looks like it's supposed to look cosmetically, even when those things happen, and, th and those things don't always happen. I mean, one of the things to point out is that these surgeries are highly uh, experimental and invasive. And so frequently there are complications, but even when you don't have complications, even when they go well, the data shows that they still don't bring any significant, meaningful improvement for the underlying uh, psychological and psychiatric conditions in terms of anxiety, depression, suicide ideation, substance abuse, et cetera, et cetera. The doctors who I've spoken to um, who are critics of sex reassignment uh, say that this isn't even good medicine. Right? Uh, we're not helping patients. We're violating the Hippocratic Oath. Well, now, because we love people, we're obviously saddened when people feel miserable. And you've expressed how a lot of this manifests in these kind of feelings. But we're especially grieved when people attempt or actually commit suicide. What kind of a difference is there in the level of incidence in suicide among persons who have gender dysphoria? For adults who identify as transgender, 41% of them will attempt suicide at some point in their lives. And that's compared to 4% of the general population. So, so that's a 10 times greater likelihood. And then for adults who have had the reassignment surgery, they're 19 times more likely to die by suicide. Now, those statistics are just utterly heartbreaking, right? N none of us want to see a, a population, a, a, you know, a segment of the population where, you know, almost half, 41% will be not only thinking about suicide, but attempting suicide. None of us want to see a segment of the population that's 19 times more likely to die by suicide. Now, activists on the left say, well, look, the reason that we see these statistics is because of, you know, transphobic bigots like you guys, right? It's because of all of your hate and all blah, blah, blah. And I, I, one, I think that's not a um, particularly um, helpful way of discussing these things. Like that sort of language is actually meant to shut down discussion. It's meant to be a silencer. It's meant to like, you know, shame people uh, into stop asking questions and exploring. But two, it's just a bad argument because some of the statistics that we have on these outcomes are coming from the most progressive places on the face of the earth, right? They're coming from like Scandinavian countries. They're coming from Sweden, uh, which suggests that it's not just about um, culture. That said, I have no doubt if you are a victim of harassment and belittling and uh, demeaning rhetoric, it will make things worse, right? And so that's why, you know, what you cautioned people at the very first thing you said as part of this interview is that, you know, we're coming from a place of love. We're not going to be using 
inappropriate rhetoric. We're not going to be name calling. And, and I just want to reiterate that because I think that's important for our listeners. What we want to do is we want to bear witness to the truth in love. And they are never in conflict. Never. They always go hand in hand because they come from the same source. Yes, sir. And this is uh, something then that, that triggers another question. Uh, in your book, you talk about within this transgender moment that there is a trend for younger and younger persons to be affected. Persons so young, they're not even making their own determinations. They're being coached into it by a parent or loved one. Now, medically, what should people know about things like puberty blockers and children's experiences with this phenomenon? Yeah, great question. So um, uh, according to you know the, the standards of care that the various gender expert working groups have promulgated, right? So these are self-selected teams of experts that are now uh, promulgating their own standards of how to care. They will say that a first step of this is what's known as social transition. That's where a child as young as three years old should be given a new name, new pronouns, a new wardrobe, access to new bathrooms, locker rooms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if they're persistent, insistent, and consistent, that they're the opposite sex, or they're both sexes, or they're neither sex, or they're somewhere in between. Second step, that child should be placed on puberty-blocking drugs to prevent them from going through, quote, the wrong puberty. Third step, now what you have after you've socially transitioned a child, you block the child from going through puberty, is you, you have a, a young adult who is trapped in a child's body, right? All of their friends, all of their classmates have gone through puberty. They've hit their growth spurt, you know, their voice has deepened, their bodies have developed, but this individual hasn't. Uh, so the third step of the process is you're trying to mimic the pubertal development of, quote, the right sex, right? The gender identity. So what they do is they uh, would give high doses of testosterone to a teenage girl, high doses of estrogen to a teenage boy. And then the last step, step four is surgical transition. So it's social transition, puberty blocking, hormonal transition, and then surgical transition. What you should know is that this is entirely experimental. There are no long-term studies on what the outcome is. We have no idea what happens to a human body if it doesn't go through biological puberty. And, and not just to sexual development, but I mean, there are all sorts of physical changes that take place during puberty, you know, in terms of your growth, organ development, mental development, psychiatric development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's entirely experimental. Second is that it's happening those next steps at younger and younger ages. Um, so uh, some people say, oh, you know, you're scaremongering, blah, blah, blah. Not true. Uh, there were two 13-year-old girls that had double mastectomies performed on their bodies as part of a study that they participated in for gender dysphoria, NIH funded. So our tax dollars paid for two 13 year olds. This is a violation of medical ethics to do anything to interfere in the bodily and psychological development of a young person, apart from normal, natural biological development. So to block biological development with puberty blockers, and then to distort that development by giving the opposite sex, sex hormones, and then to destroy bodily organs, right? Amputations, things like this, whether it be uh, removing genitalia or removing secondary sex characteristics like breast tissue, this is all highly unethical and it should be uh, prohibited in law. The government has a duty to protect these children 
uh, from the adult abuse of medicine. Now, we've discussed this uh, in scientific and medical terms, which, of course, is appropriate, Dr. Anderson. You also include two chapters in your book, one on culture and one on policy. Wanted to briefly touch on those before we conclude. A reflection on the cultural implications of this transgender moment is intolerance for discussions like we're having and discussions like your book represents. It's very scholarly. It's very medically focused. I think listeners would get the idea that that must be the case hearing you talk. But I mentioned before that Amazon delisted or effectively banned your book. But when I met you in Texas recently, you told the audience of which I was a member that you did not consider Amazon's action to be directed at you but to have a chilling effect on others. Could you explain that? Yeah, of course. I mean, like, on the one hand, look, it's directed at me in the sense that, like, it's my book that you can no longer buy on Amazon, and Amazon controls, you know, 70 to 80% of new adult nonfiction book sales, right? So, like, obviously, but it wasn't just directed at me, right? I mean, like, the message that was sent was we are sending a signal that if you write the next book like this, you're never even going to see. I mean, they sold my book for three years. They only discovered three years later, you know, after Trump was no longer president, after Josh Hawley was no longer the majority on the Senate Judiciary Committee, after Bill Barr was no longer the attorney general. It was very convenient when it is that they decided my book violated their standards. But it was meant to send a signal to the future author, the future researcher, um, that if you speak out on these issues on the wrong side, we're just going to prevent you from ever reaching an audience. Um, and this is happening, uh, in my case, it's happening at Amazon. This is also happening to teachers, to professors. And there is a you know a friend of mine who has lost his job as a, he was the chair of pediatric psychiatry. And the reason is he lost his job is that he spoke at an event that I organized. And he was a speaker and he gave his expert opinion. I, I tell his story in the book, you know, what, what, what should happen to uh, children with gender dysphoria, and they uh, they terminated him. Right, he's suing. Right, and this still in active litigation. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, but he's in his sixties. And you know what, what he said to me he was like, "Look, this wasn't just about me. They're trying to silence my students. Right, people who are just starting their careers. Uh, if they know that, well, hmm, even if you speak accurately, charitably, you know, you have all your facts and figures lined up." If you say something that's politically incorrect, you might lose your job. You might lose access to the marketplace. That can censor people, right? And that's the the chilling effect uh, that I'm mentioning. I understand. Now, I used to believe that only governments had the power truly to censor, but I think governments wish they had the power of Amazon to censor content or Google, YouTube, Facebook, these guys. But since mental health is a key component to all of our overall health. And since mental health is obviously part of disassociation between our thoughts and our biological cellular composition, and since mental health is obviously also a contributor to suicide attempts or ideation, it seems to me like silencing discussions about such a topic has got to be deleterious to people's health. Now, uh, to wrap up, I want to talk briefly about policy. That's how you concluded the book as well. We could talk about restrooms, we could talk about locker rooms or sporting competition, 
uh, or any other policy implications. So I invite you, Dr. Ryan Anderson, to highlight whatever policy matter you might think that listeners would best consider. What I would point out is, is simply say, if we are going to have um, separate anything, whether it's facilities, programs, athletics for boys and girls, men and women, are we doing it because of bodily differences or because of stereotypes? Um, because we're either going to do it based on objective biology or we're going to be doing it based on subjective identities, in which case, why do we even have separate programs, facilities and activities to begin with? Right? It, it strikes me that it's either because there are bodily differences that make a difference or would makes it just doesn't make sense why we have separate male and female facilities if it's not based upon our bodily nature. But what's even more important to my mind is how the law uh, will govern the way that we speak about these things and how the law will govern the medicine that follows from these things. And so right now there is a teacher in my school district uh, who has been placed on administrative leave from his job, not because of anything that he did in the classroom, but because he spoke at a school board meeting and he spoke criticizing a proposed transgender policy for the public school district. If you can't even speak at a government hearing without fear of losing your job, how do we even continue to function as a self-governing uh, republic? Next thing, will good medicine be prohibited by the state? Some states are trying to prevent doctors from helping children feel comfortable in their bodies. And will bad medicine be mandated? Uh, some states are saying you have to do uh, the reassignment procedures. There are two Catholic hospitals right now being sued because they won't do the reassignment procedures. Those are you know, some of the public policy questions that I think we need to think about. You know, the sex-specific programs, facilities, you know, the freedom to even have this discussion, and then what's going to happen with medicine. Will bad medicine be mandated? Will good medicine be prohibited? That last one could seem like a tipping point. It would be the government saying, okay, mental health professionals, you really don't matter. Go away. Surgeons, it's all on you. And parents or individuals, the choice is no longer yours anyway. If you express these thoughts, we got the plan for you. That doesn't sound like something that anybody would say. That's a really great course of action. Yeah. And, and, and it's terrible. Like as a parent, if you can't even find access to good medicine because it's been prohibited, and if you are facing a one-way ratchet of, well, if I tell anyone that my child has this struggle, I'm going to have to place them on puberty blockers. I'm going to have to place them on cross-sex hormones. That is not a good place to be. Uh, and increasingly, if we don't organize and uh, effectively educate on this, um, that is the direction that we're headed. So, you know, it's important that our listeners, you know, do something with the knowledge they've learned uh, to prevent us from going in that direction. Well, thank you so much for that. The book is When Harry Became Sally. It's available from Encounter Books. It's not available from Amazon. You can get it at Walmart as well. I think uh, maybe Barnes & Noble, but Encounter Books, I recommend uh, is the direct source. The author is Dr. Ryan Anderson. And thank you so much for joining me today on Core Principles, Ryan. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you. Core Principles podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles podcast. 
please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.